I went and opened up my second edition player's handbook to just kind of look at the, refamiliarize myself with the difference between how they were doing weapons then. Yeah, 18 different types of pole arms, and that's not counting the spear, four different types of lances, javelin, and trident. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Jordan. And I am Elliot. And before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. Or, I'm sorry, not media, at just facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And if you would like to help us out with supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia, where if you enjoy our content and would like to help us with hosting costs, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Today we are going to be talking about weapons and armor in RPGs, and we're also going to be talking about historical accuracy and how, well, seemingly some game systems don't give two shits about historical accuracy. One thing that I'm going to link in the show notes for this is I'm going to link several uh, YouTube channels that are really good for um, their explanation as to what different arms and armor from historical periods were like. Um, Ironically enough, these are all the things that I um, linked in my very first Geek Things recommendation all the way back in episode 36. So um, I'm going to link... Put links to uh, Scala Gladiatoria, Lindy Beige, Shadowversity, and Metatron YouTube channels. I'm hoping to to learn a little bit because for some reason my geekdom has never really delved too too deep in the in the realism of war and magic or war and ar- weapons and armor and stuff. So I'm I'm horribly ignorant about this stuff. Well, most of my information has just been gleaned over just the years of being exposed to it through tabletop games, but also video games, um, the different ways in which it's, it's portrayed there. Um, and that was the impetus for me wanting to learn more about it. Back when I was in high school, I got a book that was all about just weapons, weapons and illustrative guide from 5,000 to, uh, to, uh, the 20th century. Um, I, I'll put a link of that in the show notes, but um, that I recently discovered that that book was updated to include weapons up and it was updated in 2007. And apparently the 2007 update of that book was absolutely atrocious. They just photocopied stuff from previous books and did a really shitty job of photocopying it. It looks really blurry and stuff in places. So I think I would be looking for a different update to uh, to that book whenever I want to get one. I'd like to add a YouTube channel to your list, um, Clayton. It's uh, Modern History TV. It's done by this guy named uh, Jason Kingsley, and he's got I don't know how many episodes, like in the hundreds, I think, um, of videos where he's. I guess he does medieval um, Renaissance festivals and stuff like that, but he's got some farm in England somewhere that's his place and he, you know, has his full plate mail and all his weapons and stuff. And he just goes like, um, you know, point by point, here's what this particular aspect of being a knight was like in, you know, the 1400s or whatever. But yeah, it's riveting stuff and it's all like real bite-sized little, you know, 10 or 15 minute videos. Sometimes brings on historians to talk about different things and whatever, but Lots of like field testing of techniques and equipment and stuff like that. So that's a, a really solid source for this kind of thing as well. Uh, once upon a time, I worked at a, a hobby town, USA, basically a grown-up toy shop, a nerd, nerd, a nerd sanctuary. And one of the things that we always carried that I would just, you know, on breaks or when the store was not busy, I would leaf through our Osprey publishing books and maybe. I don't know if anybody has jumped into those or seen those. I'm sure other people have maybe been listening to this. If you haven't had a chance, really um, dive into those. The, the little bit of accurate uh, medieval kind of stuff that I have uh, at hand is uh, I've always carried this book I actually purchased called The Battle of Hastings 1066. 
and it's a they deep dive different historical events from World War II all the way back to the the Romans, and they they take all the knowledge at the time of the weapons. The, the they're usually centered on war, and so uh, there are pictures of recovered um, chainmail what they looked like uh they have like illustrations of what the common soldier would look like and their weapons and they would have whole chapters on like what different armies and different groups of the periods would wield and how they would outfit and train and the vast majority of my working knowledge just comes from that but they make a whole series of of these books that specifically focus on you know weapons of war and armor and and how war was done in the ancient times they're really fascinating osprey publishing yeah, the Osprey books kick ass. I love those. So we're we're gonna talk about hardware, right? We're not gonna talk much about you know combat mechanics, you know fighting maneuvers, stuff like that. I'm sure that that'll probably come up at some point when we're talking about some of these things tangentially. But that's not the point of this discussion, correct? We're not talking about can you do things like historical techniques but rather do you have the equipment that reflects the period being portrayed is that right right um i see it as we're we're going to be we're not going to be talking about the techniques of sword play but we are going to be talking about like the versatility of a sword and how that's just not fucking represented at all in in gameplay yep where are we good I was just going to ask, where do, where do you want to start, Clay? Well, do we want to start with arms, or do we want to start with armor? Oh, let's 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 do uh, armor first. All right. So, what is armor supposed to do? <laughs> like, like in like in D anD D, it prevents you from getting hit. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what armor does. It prevents you from getting hit. But in other systems, you've got. Uh, you've got a variety of different styles of um, whether it absorbs damage, um, whether you do get hit, but it just absorbs a certain amount of damage. Um, then there are other systems that go into, well, this particular armor is better against this particular type of attack and uh, provides different values against these these different types of attacks. And that gets to be a nightmare if you're going for realism in a game, but it really reflects how it was actually done but i mean whenever i'm playing D, there's a certain level of realism that i just want to ignore because then i just get bogged down in just the minutia of whether or not whether or not this long sword which is a slashing weapon whenever i attack against somebody who is wearing mail and and by mail i mean chain mail um well, that's a slashing attack. It protects really good against slashing because you can't cut through it. But then you got the fact that the longsword is effectively becoming a bludgeoning weapon, and you are, the damage that the longsword does against a chainmail armor isn't a slash. It's just a huge blunt force trauma. Yeah, there's there's effectively like three different ways that. Um an incoming attack can be dealt with and D&D tries to compress all of those into this thing called an armor class but the the options that you have are evasion just not getting hit at all deflection meaning you know slightly making contact with whatever the incoming projectile or weapon is but mostly redirecting its force away from you and then absorption where you just disperse that force over a wide enough area of your body and through a material that's sturdy enough that um you know it's not going to do significant harm to you and depending on what kind of attack is going on you've got a completely different um version of that one of those different means of dealing with attacks um being what uh, armor class is and it gets really weird sometimes because like for example um, against grappling if I'm in full plate mail somehow I'm much harder to grapple than somebody that's just running around with normal clothes on that doesn't make any sense at all but that's that's how it works um, yeah so I mean in general system wise you know I've 
personally never had a hard time separating the hit point system and the AC system from reality. Maybe because it is just so not reality. It's just one of those conceits that you have to have a game first. And I think realism should take a necessary backseat to game design. But uh, that being said, a system that's in D&D that I think maybe they were thinking it's too difficult to pull off, but I love is I just like the damage. Well, it's like soaking damage, the damage resistance. And it always seemed to me that armor best is best represented in that way, which exists within, say, classic, you know, fifth edition D&D that they don't use for armor, which is just, you know, you... Your armor's there to soak damage. Like, that video you posted was awesome. It had a, a dude in full uh, plate and another guy just smashing him with a longsword. And the guy just doesn't even flinch, doesn't even make a dent, doesn't... It just... He's just banging this guy and it's doing nothing. And to me, that's... That would be re- a realistic kind of game, sy- uh, game system where it's just like you have a damage threshold. You gotta have a weapon that can do a certain amount of damage before it even gets to the player, gets to the character. Uh, that system, that just reflects armor in what I think armor should be, you know? Is are there is there any system that does that, like, as their armor system? Yes, absolutely. That's um that's how Stormbringer, um, I think RuneQuest 2, both the Chaosium systems, that's how they handle medieval combat. Um, you've got... Like I was saying, you've got a, a dodge skill that um, would represent, you know, complete evasion of a blow. You've got a parry skill that is part of your your weapon skills to deflect things coming in, and you would have a parry for a shield and a parry for a sword, um, depending on what you want to do. But if it goes through both of those, um, you know, possible evasion uh, maneuvers when it actually hits you, your armor has a a rating, a damage reduction rating. And, uh, you know, if I roll a D8 against you and get a five and your armor's, you know, three, then you're going to take two damage that went through that, that armor. Um, and yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite systems of all time. And I, I guess this is another thing to, to bring up about the way that this is another one of those intersections of, you know, the gear and the, the combat system, how defense is so completely passive in Dungeons and Dragons. You never roll anything to block with your shield. You never roll anything to dodge out of the way. You're just standing there with this flat number. And, and unless you have like the, the one, uh, well, I guess there's maybe like two instances of things you could do. Um, if you're a wizard, you could do a reflexive like cast of a shield spell and if you're a rogue, um, you know, you could do, um, what is it? Is it evasion? No, it's uh, uncanny dodge. Yeah, to have the damage of stuff as your as your reaction. But that's it. That's that's pretty much it. Unless you've got some other, you know, class ability, there's, there's no way to be a participant in your own defense. You know, that, that drives me crazy. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about the, um, particularly about the Apocalypse Engine games, um, Apocalypse World, Dungeon World, um, the way they deal with, I mean, this is, I'm getting in the weeds here, I'm, I'm going up and I'm going far afield. They handle everything is a role made by the player. The DM does, is not, does, is not supposed to be rolling dice in that system. So everything that, happens to the player is an active role on the player's part Mm. so how do they do that how does that relate to their armor really armor is just a um, reduction of damage the way you get damaged in that system is um, enemies don't make attack rolls against you on your turn if you perform poorly whatever action you're trying to do you might get damaged by the enemy based on your role so like if you have a complete failure, then you're definitely getting hit by the enemy. If you have basically a partial success, then that might mean that the, that the enemy gets a hit on you or some other effect takes place. If you get a, a complete success, then that means that you manage to damage the enemy without them damaging you. Ah. How does PvP work? You don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, <laughs> not playing that dirt. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I mean, another thing, though, that, and now this, we'll talk about getting far afield. Let's take it off role-playing games in general. Uh, You know, I'm going to do my best impersonation of Joe Rogan here and pretend like I know something that I actually don't, but I'm going to try to pass it off that I do. But, (laughs) you know, it's, it's my understanding that, you know, history and archaeology and what we know about medieval times and medieval, the high era of knots and armor. I mean, really, armor's existed since, you know, people could really go to mass war. So it's not like armor was anything new. But when I think armor and, and, and medieval combat is what comes to my mind, full plate, you know, lots of chain mail, big ass swords and knots just going at it. Much of what we know about how that was done, the skill of it, the martial tradition, you know, once the, I guess it was the longbow, right? That, that really kind of rendered that kind of art technology obsolete. Uh, much of it was lost, right? We don't really know how they trained, how they fought, how they prepared with any great detail. Am I wrong in there that you guys know of? Partially. There's a ton of fighting manuals that have survived um, because there were, you know, all sorts of different uh, sword fighting masters in different places, but especially in like Italy. Um, And a lot of that got carried through as sort of a, a nobleman's pursuit like into the renaissance i mean for a while it was just a matter of like you know self-defense things from you know bandits on the streets or whatever but there's long manuals that go into all these details but i mean i've got i've got a reprinting of one of them and a lot of times you know because at the time fucking books themselves were new um nobody really knew a good way to you know, lay out an instruction manual. So like, here's an illustration of two guys going at it and maybe a sentence or two of what's actually happening. But there's a lot of room for interpretation of how exactly that went and how much of that is like how the stance is actually supposed to be and how much of it is just like shitty art because, you know, some of these illustrations were pretty poor. I mean, photorealistic artwork wasn't even really a thing yet. So that's like, into the weeds, like technical stuff about how long sword fighting or, you know, poleaxe fighting or whatever, um, was taught. Um, and a lot of that had changed at that point because, um, you know, you're talking like 15, 1600s when a lot of that stuff is around. And by that time people are walking around cities with, you know, maybe an arming doublet or, you know, some like fairly, uh, low protection armor. Um, that's just their, you know, evening walking around in the alleys kind of clothes. A lot of that's going to be the same for two guys slugging it out in full plate harness, but some of it is not the same. But just looking at that video, that video showed that like a full blown blast from a sword, that that wasn't going to cut it when you, when you're fighting another night, you know? Right. Uh, The way you take guys like that down is that you would literally just tackle them and pull out a dagger and try to get it down into the eye slits or up underneath their armpits or something. There was no, like, duking it out until someone gets their head cut off. That's kind of silly. Or if you had, like, you know, a big hammer or something, you know, try to crush something in so that they can't breathe and, uh, you know, maybe crush their helmet. But as far as, like, the large-scale warfare stuff, that stuff mostly comes from tapestries. And the the Bayou tapestries, like the big famous one. Um, but again, that's a whole lot of interpretation. And this is like really primitive illustration that um, we're dealing with, too. Yeah, I'm actually looking at that right now. It's in that 1066 book. And there's only so much detail you can provide on a woven tapestry. Mm-hmm. That's that's I mean, that's a lot of what survived. Yeah, and that's stuff that happened like five or six hundred years ago. And when you go back as far as like ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, ancient Babylonia, like there is nothing really explaining how this stuff worked. We assume that hoplite warfare was two big, long, deep lines of people just basically getting into a a shoving match against each other. Yeah, the uh, shout out to Mike Duncan and the uh, po- the uh, history of uh, Rome podcast. There is a, a a little bit known about the reforms uh, that Marius uh, instituted, but that had less to do with you know individual like this is what they carried or the weapons and stuff. That was more tactic changes and how they adapted the 
the, the the Greek phalanx. But uh, bringing it uh, back to the gaming systems, though, none of that's a level of tactics. Uh, you know, plate mail is completely misrepresented by almost any, at least the D and D games I've ever played. You know, it's just assumed that. I mean, like we were just talking about this off the pod that. You know, there's about a million different types of weapons in the player's handbook, and yet I only see four or five ever played by used by characters because they're all redundant. Much of them, there's only a few that maxes out damage, and the ones that do, there's no alternative that does a, a lesser damage that actually gives any decent utility. But I mean, we were just laughing about the hammer. What was that? Ham- the light hammer, right? It's like a D6 bludgeoning weapon that's. D4. D4, it's useless. Uh, you could imagine, you know, uh, when you're fighting someone with, with plate, like you were saying, Jordan, just imagine how bad your day was if somebody just ran up with a giant hammer or even a just a specifically made hammer and just caved in your chest plate and now you can't breathe. Like, that would be an exciting, that would be an exciting, uh, moment in combat, right? If like you're the guy in plate and you're like walking around all cocky and next thing you know, you see somebody pull out their hammer and you all of a sudden you know you're you're like uh oh oh shit this guy's gonna brain me i'm gonna my helmet's gonna be in my fucking nasal cavity if i'm not careful that's that's one very specific example of uh, a weapon that they got completely wrong is the war hammer um it does bludgeoning damage now one of the cool things about a lot of the medieval weapons is that they had multiple different options um, for how to take somebody apart, you know, a warhammer would have like kind of a flat or maybe like a four pronged regular hammer looking head on it, but then would also have a spike on the other end, like a hook. Um, and then maybe another spike on the top. And what was commonly done as a, a mounted warrior is that you would ride up on infantrymen and just bring that spike down right on top of their fucking helmet and they're over with. In 5th edition, every weapon has a single damage type. That's preposterous. Uh, a poleaxe is another example of that. you got a spike, you've got a like, curb or a, a long blade, like an axe blade, um, a hammerhead kind of thing, another spike on the other end. Um, you know, the idea was, like, you've got this Swiss Army knife, this, this can opener, literally, <laughs> that you get a dude down in different kinds of ways and you're going to be able to take somebody apart with whatever end makes the most sense given the situation. Uh, there's none of that here. Halberds, same you know, extension of the poleaxe. I think a lot of the reason for why the weapons and armor are so misrepresented from how they are actually used is the fact that in the past 50 years, which is how long it's been since the original Dungeons & Dragons was being formulated, we have really advanced a lot in how we understand how these systems were being used. We are we are having more and more and more people like actually going through these um these medieval treatises because they are they have been copied and put onto the internet. So literally anyone can research them and learn about this and work it out for themselves how it's most likely that these things were done and in and we're still using this archaic mindset of how these weapons and armor were being used and full like what we refer to as full plate armor was so grossly misunderstood during the victorian era that it took until like the past 20 or 30 years for us to understand just how wrong we were about it. Yeah, I think the rise of things like HEMA and, uh, you know, historical reenactment has done a lot for that. Uh, the historical European martial arts, people can, you know, work out with, with long swords or whatever. Like, wait a second, this shit doesn't make sense. Like, I'm beating the hell out of this guy doing this one simple thing, but... Wait, didn't work out the way we suspected. Sorry, Elliot, go ahead. No, it's just, you know, two things comes to my mind there. It's like, for one, you know, thanks Gary Gygax, again, for creating a generation of frustrated gamers who went on to become 
adults who took up the trade and i would say we those organizations owe a lot to just the popularizations of medieval times from the war gaming scene and D specifically and thanks beyond that token for inspiring the whole th- genre but um but then again you know at what point do you sacrifice once again i think we always get back to this when we critique any game it's like at what point do you sacrifice realism for complexity to enhance the fun you know do people are different I don't like that that defense because I've seen it done better in other games that are about as complex or even less complex. There's there's ways of getting these details across, like the Chaosium system does it, in an elegant way that doesn't bog things down. And the extra work, I think, um, actually is more fun. Like, when I get to roll, you know, to, to block an incoming blow, like, I feel like I'm sword fighting when I'm playing that game. When I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons, I feel like I'm playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots. You know what I mean? You know, that was my first gaming experience. The very first role-playing game I sat down for more than one week. I think I, I mean, it was literally the first game was the Chaosium system. And just you talking about it, it came, it came all those memories back of the parry and the, the dodge and uh, all that stuff. And I remember going from that table, my next game I think was a World of Darkness game, which was good i think i like world of darkness damage system but it was different much different and then eventually going on to third edition which came out not long after i started role playing and let's just say that it was a stark contrast (laughs) i feel like for particularly medieval weapons and armor and and things that came before that the problem with how it's portrayed today is entirely based on the legacy of the game and how this is how it was when Gary Gygax was learning about these things and putting them into a game system and making a fun game out of it. And we've learned a lot since then, but because the legacy of D&D is, is its legacy and people don't want to change that, we end up perpetuating all of these errors that we could create a cool game system that follows the the um the ideas of the dungeons and dragons that does more accurately reflect what we now know but i i i see a big problem just being in that oh the way that these weapons are handled are is considered a sacred cow for D&D and so we can't change it yeah you're absolutely right I mean, like, there is nothing in D&D that is an arming sword. You know, the standard sidearm of, you know, the 13th, 14th century knight. Um, what are you going to call that? A short sword? Well, that's wrong. It's not a gladius, you know. And a long sword is not at all what you actually want. A long sword is, you know, a historical long sword would be closer to what a great sword is in here, I think. But, yeah, it's just like... Here's how it's supposed to be, because that's the way the first and second edition did it. You know, like, I sometimes, though, when we, well, I think when I get into these conversations, I personally never played tabletop war games. Not D&D, but they re- the, what, really the, the hobby that it was born, D&D was born out of. Have you guys played much just tabletop war gaming? Never. Back in the day, I played Warhammer for a minute, um, but not for very long. This is something that blew my mind. I was watching a Star Wars doc a long time ago, and it got on the subject of Peter Cushing, the guy that played Grand Moff Tarkin. And, you know, he was an older gentleman in the 70s, and he was a storied actor. And apparently one of his hobbies was, and this was very popular in the late 1800s, early 20th century, was uh, wargaming. Apparently there was a particular game that was the Genesis. It was a Napoleonic game where you actually bought figurines, you set up a, you used a large chunk of like a floor and you would just set up wars and you'd play war games. And, and having worked at Hobby Town and been around those guys, we had a, we start, a lot of those guys came there to get our, to get their miniatures from us. And the, the gaming systems were, are extremely elaborate. And the, 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 where realism is the goal, there's a million different rule sets out there and they're all driving at different things, but the common, theme is that they have no fear of complexity and they just dive deep to try to make the most realistic war scenario war gaming scenario so like i think and i know that gary gygax grew out of that tradition and um you know 
in some ways it's almost like yeah they're more you know i think that he was intentionally simplifying it down even from a level of complexity that there had previously existed it's just he took it from the large scale to the individual and they that transition left a lot to be desired i think whenever he was doing his game design because those guys get way into like what are, what is this army wielding what does what do these troops are these archers what kind of what kind of you know bows do they have what kind of swords do they have what kind of armor do they have and they had rules within rules within rules i think that brings up another problem with um dungeons and dragons is that it's not set in a particular geographic place at a particular geographic time so if you're doing napoleonic tabletop combat okay here is a set of weapons and uh, they probably didn't even have much in the way of armor um but here's the gear that they had then and there but with D&D, like they're trying to represent everything from you know bronze age kind of technology up to you know the renaissance and it, a lot of it doesn't make any sense because these weapons didn't exist you know contemporarily with each other so for some reason they they take this you know 3000 years worth of weapons um and try to make them balanced with each other but that doesn't make any sense that completely ignores the whole progress the whole you know that's what an arms race is <laughs> making better weapons than your enemy over time jordan you're making you're making me think of my character who uh was a fighter who was armed with a kopesh and running around in full plate armor <laughs> a kopesh being an ancient med or ancient egyptian weapon and then medieval armor created in the like 14th 15th century whenever they had to make armor um proof against bullets hmm. so yeah there's like there's absolutely no delineation between what was available at different time frames because you're literally throwing everything in there together and just assuming that this this is how it this needs to be balanced out to work. I favor systems that have like the um like I mentioned earlier the apocalypse engine system where you've got weapons that are you have a base weapon and then you just add things on top of it to give it those unique flares that that would represent a different like like looking at the the variety of of uh Jordan you mentioned an arming sword a sword of that length that has a a blade length of like 30 inches and it has a handle that's big enough to fit in one hand the the sheer amount of variety that was available in Europe in the 1400s for that description of a weapon and that's ignoring everything else that was ever made in the entire world over the course of human history which would also meet that meet that criteria like there's not really a way of differentiating one weapon for another and there's like one of the books that I really loved in 3rd edition was the arms and equipment guide and one of the things that it did that I really wish was become a part of every D&D edition in the player's handbook is they just they listed a bunch of stats and then they gave examples of all the different types of of weapons that of like they they would list like a short sword and then they would list all of the different swords from Europe from Africa from uh from near Asia from uh the the far east um all of those different weapons that kind of meet that that statistic or that um that dice requirement that the the stat requirement for a short sword and it gave some advice on how to make that unique make that its own weapon and that brings something else to my mind too one thing that i've never seen any role playing game do well is to just take into consideration craftsmanship quality of quality of the uh quality of the the arms and equipment i mean we dnd kind of does it through magical properties you know you get your plus ones your plus twos or whatever um but you know you know in history there are like so many different legendary sources of swords and that's what really made you know the samurai sword that was crafted by a master was such a sign of status you know and then you had what, what was it uh 
type of steel that was made, uh, I think it was, what, North Africa or Spain? What was that, uh, that famous material for swords? Uh, they would be coveted, you know what I mean? Wearing out weapons and then breaking or having to even maintenance. I mean, you know, if you were a crusader, you know, one, you know, on your way to a big battle or you're going from one battle to the next, like, you know, you'd be maintenancing your weapons and equipment would be a huge part of your routine. And I don't know the last time I saw or I even thought in a game to maybe I should sharpen my sword, you know, <laughs> like I've seen cool uh, relic weapons they pulled out of uh, burial sites and stuff from the early Iron Age or whatever that would have been, I mean, yeah, they were eroded and stuff from time, but they were clearly like chipped and like worn and stuff, but they were still very effective. And that would be scary to have some dude with a real well-worn, you know, knotted, uh, chipped away sword because you're like, oh shit, this guy's killed a lot of people with that. Yeah, there's a... I mean, there is a whetstone in the equipment list, and it doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's the point of having that there? Uh, yeah, like, your weapon will never break in 5th edition. I, I don't know how to get a weapon to break if I had to, unless someone was casting, like, what is that spelled? Sunder or something? Um, like, it's really hard to get that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've sat through comical experiences where people have had, like, wooden doors in front of them. It's like, well, I guess I beat them with my sword till it knocks in. And I, as a DM, it's like, okay, that happens. And you never think. It's like, okay, cool. Well, your weapon's ruined. Yeah, unless you have, like, an axe or something. That's that's not what you're supposed to do. Shatter, I think, is what that spell is called. Yeah. that, But it only works against things that are not worn or carried. Yeah, it specifically <laughs> leaves out weapons. So, okay, if it's laying somewhere, maybe. But... That's, um, again, to belabor Stormbringer, um, that's one of the things that could happen if you botched your, a parry or something, your weapon just breaks, like, they hit it right, you know, it's been bashed at for long enough, and fucking snapped, and so you'd have to carry around, you know, some backup weapons, and that was exciting. <laughs> there, I've never had an experience in 5th edition quite like when I'm in a tense sword fight with somebody in Stormbringer and I fucking break my sword. That's amazing. I, I wanted to bring up um, one thing uh, that we talked about this outside of the podcast a little bit and that is the um, the oversimplification um, of 5th edition especially compared to older editions. So even the things that um, they tried to get detailed with like the weapon attributes like heavy for instance or reach they botch those horribly i mean spear doesn't have reach this game's stupid just off the top <laughs> that's the whole fucking point of a spear uh but aside from that like um there there is no more uh weapon speed kind of thing going on that i miss and i think it could have easily been put in here and i don't know why they didn't accept that they were just zealots about trying to make this game simplified. But the idea was from second edition, for those who haven't played, I think it might have been in first two, but I haven't looked at old in really old D&D books in a while. The idea is that your weapon was a modifier to your initiative. It was a penalty. Um, so if I'm using a dagger, I might have a weapon speed one. So if my initiative was 15, it's going to be a 14 because I'm using this dagger maybe. Yeah, might have a weapon speed zero, I don't know. But if I'm using, you know, a maul or, you know, a great axe, then it's going to have a much higher weapon speed and push me towards the back. That's cool. I like that. That gives you another dimension on which to weigh the different weapon choices. And I, I think that that's one of the main things that's missing from the weapon selection list is that there's just not enough factors to distinguish one weapon from another. And so, you know, like, what do you have? You got cost, you got damage, you got weight, which hardly matters at all, and then whatever properties that you're looking for. So you're really only caring about, you know, honestly, two of those, because cost is negligible once you get, you know, a little, a couple of sessions. And damage and properties, pick the highest damage with the properties you want, that's the end of it. And so the weapon list could be 10 items and make everybody happy. I think that weapon speed is something that is incredibly hard to make matter in a game where 
everything is based, is rigidly structured about combat rounds. Like um, I've played, um, oh, what was that? The um, the where you were playing the children of the gods in World of Darkness, um, Scion. Scion yeah. with that system, that system did not have a round like where everybody had a round and then we go back around and then we go back around. That had a system where you had basically a, a clock and how whatever action you did would take a certain amount of time. And that amount of time was how long you had until your next action. So it was really dynamic. And you, if you had a, what was, well, a fast weapon, like a, like attacking with a dagger was a whole hell of a lot faster than swinging a big two handed maul. I could see in a game system like that where weapon speed being a really big factor because you would literally be able to get multiple attacks with this weapon or like, Jordan, what you've done, what you had in Apocalyptia was where certain weapons you can attack additional times. Um, if you do something like that, it works well. But I think that with with the D&D or any other system where you are rigidly stuck in going in combat rounds, it's harder to do. It's better in systems where initiative changes every single round, but but even then... Even then, it seems to it bogs down the game too much for my tastes because it. Well, I just don't like systems where the initiative changes every single round. That's what, that was the thought that I had when we were discussing, and really throughout the course of this uh, last fifteen twenty minutes, is you know at what point does do all of these little uh, mini games, I guess you could call them, almost become a warrior's spell components? I mean, here we are bagging on D&D, as usual, asking for a little more complexity. And yet one of the places where there is some cumbersome complexity is almost always completely ignored. I mean, I know as a DM, I encourage my players to keep up with their spell components, but I, I'm not going to check that crap. I don't know what your spell components are. I don't really care. I don't want it to bog down the game because you guys have to take a, a side quest to go get some, like, owl feathers, you know? But... I mean, maybe I'm missing the boat there. Maybe that can lead to fun content generation, but I, I could see a lot of those things being get quickly kind of, you know, hated. I think there's a big difference. Let me let me try to explain why I think this because I'm I'm just now like formulating this as I speak. But I I think the the reason that I that those two things are very different sorts of systems is that the the spell component system. It contributes nothing. It's just prohibitive. And, you know, maybe there's, you know, adventure seeds or whatever to go get, you know, strange components or whatever. But mechanically speaking, all it is is a blocker on your character's ability to do stuff. Whereas the stuff that I'm trying to talk about here with, you know, having different things to consider about what your weapons can do and, you know, what your armor is good against and like the dynamics of combat that's more stuff that you can do and more options within combat. So it's, it's not prohibiting anything. It's not standing in the way it's giving you more things to think about while you're doing this. And also spell components are specific to certain classes of uh, characters, whereas the combat system is shared by everybody. Some people focus on it more than others, but you know, that everybody is involved in combat in some way. So I think it's a little bit more fundamental and, you know, not as, as spell components are a penalty on wizards. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true too. I, to, not to, uh, derail back onto initiative though. I did want to shout out one game. I really enjoyed there. I really enjoyed the, uh, Deadlands, old classic Deadlands initiative system. Uh, I always thought that was interesting and, and it did affect what kind of weapons you, you wanted to get. If you knew you had a high quick draw or high speed, you, you drew off the top of a card deck, and so the faster you were, the more su more successes you would get during your combat turn. So you would just draw more cards, and so if you drew good, you could draw like high suits, and high suits would go first, and that's how they went down the line. But you know, if you, it's possible that a slower character may only have one, two actions, but your gunslinger, you could have four or five, you know, different actions in the same round that another player had one or two. 
And if you could, if you also then had a gun that was like you could fire off multiple times or you dual wielded a, a two weapons, holy cow, you could deal the death fast. And the system was pretty lethal too. So you're, you're, if you were a, a, a gunslinger, holy cow. And we haven't talked about guns. I mean, do we want to? I mean, do we want to bring guns and how the different, I know that me personally in fantasy settings, I loathe the game settings that give you access to guns, me personally, but. That's just like I like more medieval, early medieval kind of fantasy games. If you're doing like a steampunky Victorian or like high fantasy game, I mean, do you guys like introducing guns into this kind of a system? I will say that guns before um, before cartridges and before before you could fire off multiple rounds without having to reload. Before that, guns fucking sucked, and you cannot balance that. I just hate them. I don't know why. Like, if I want to shoot a gun, I'll shoot a gun in, like, a modern-day game setting or something similar. I just, for some reason, always hate that guy who rolls into the party and you're, like, you're wielding your sword or whatever. And the guy's like, yeah, I've got a, a blunderbuss or whatever they were called. And, you know, the hand cannon, basically. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. This guy's at the table. Ugh. I should clarify the game rules for guns before cartridge and multiple firings always suck i haven't seen a game system that handles it handles it well there's a reason why guns took over the battlefield and obliterated the need for armor up until the late 20th century guns were so much so dominant on the battlefield to make a balanced game with guns and also other types of weapons you really just can't do it yeah feudal japan is a good example where that there was that period after they when there was the samurais and all that that culture, and then all of a sudden they met the West and and they started using muskets and and stuff like that, there was that weird overlapping time. I think that'd be a good version, kind of what is it, Legend of the Five Rings kind of era. I don't know if that's exactly correct, but uh, where it how they how basically a feudal society in war had to quickly integrate fairly sophisticated guns is an interesting period in time, which would probably lend itself to a role playing game that could do guns well in the way I'm thinking about it, but. I'm not seeing it done good. Well, feudal Japan had firearms from the 1400s. They just were stuck with, um, I think, matchlock is how is the types of guns that because there was a um, uh, a Portuguese trading trading vessel that brought firearms to Japan in like the 1400s, but Japan never developed better guns, hmm. and they remained isolationists up until like the 1870s, 1880s. And that's when they had this big catch up. So you like through the majority of samurai culture, you had firearms there in Japan, but they were the they were basically the crappiest version of guns. Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying about um, not being D and D not being in any particular era or um, geographic location. Um, yeah, once you get guns in in Western civilization, and you know the late 14 1500s um war changes completely it all becomes you know a line of dudes with pikes and then a line of dudes behind them with you know shitty muskets basically and maybe they're shitty maybe some portion of them explode or are horribly inaccurate but if you got a row of 30 guys shooting a volley like fuck that dude on a horse (laughs) you know well, this also kind of, that's another thing. That's, I'm glad you mentioned that because one thing I've always wanted, especially, you know, as you roll into higher level games and you assume that player characters have some sort of renown or prestige, most, the, the armor and the weapons that we usually see people have in like adventuring parties are often the weapons of war for mass war, mass war combat, you know. But, I mean, I'm trying to think like maybe Lord of the Rings, I guess, would be a good example. You know who wore plate mail in that in the fellowship? No, nobody. Nobody, because it's a, a. I mean, I guess it would be overkill. I mean, I guess a lot of our, a lot of the the, the armor system that people look to D and D to have, they want to have us. They want to be a knight with plate that travels. That's like Arthurian kind of ideals where that that wasn't totally realistic. I don't know if you were a knight in the Middle Ages. If it would definitely behoove you to always, I mean, other than to show your status, were you always wearing your plate mail? Like, I have, we have one player in my game right now that 
I don't know if he's ever doffed his plate ever. I know I never have whenever I have a character that has plate. And yet, if you owned plate, w- would you even have that on the majority of time? No, absolutely not. And and that's what stuff like uh, like a chain shirt, you know, a male shirt was supposed to be for. Um, I mean, throughout the Crusades, they didn't have plate mail. They had, you know, they had a, a padded coat underneath. They had uh, a male shirt, maybe, and uh, a tabard over top of that. Um, and then, like, you know, a big bucket helmet or something. Um, but even once you get plate mail, it's a very, very exclusive group of people that have that. And, you know, it's a lot of maintenance. It's a lot of expense to to keep that that up and it's a little bit more like in a in a modern context being like a fighter pilot you know you're in this one particular role on the battlefield and there's a lot of logistics that that keep you doing that thing that you're doing but you're not a a general purpose combatant you know you're you're there for this one particular role and it costs a lot of money to keep you there I mean, weren't they often mounted as well? Wasn't that part of the whole... Um, That's know, the what I'm night, saying. Not idea. You were mainly cavalry to swoop in, swoop out, take a few hits and not get hurt and then swing back around. Everybody exactly. Else, everybody else would be on foot wearing chain or, or leather or whatever, wielding probably like an axe and maybe even like a small shield. That's about a helmet. That's about it. That's that's the the fighter jet metaphor that I was going for. You're meant to like swoop in, devastate, and then get the fuck out and then turn around and do it again. And you were stupid rich. Like, stupid right. rich. So, yeah, you were literally the lord of a, an area. You That was the only way you could get the money to get the, those resources. And then if you went into mercenary life, because your parents had those resources that you could then afford to have all of the best gear and stuff, that just perpetuated the wealth because then you were going out on campaign and being able to get paid better because you were um, one of the mounted or one of the heavy mounted cavalry. Um, it was just another way in which the the, aristocrat- the aristocracy perpetuated themselves. So have you guys ever seen a system that was able to go back and forth between an, a more like individual single person initiative turn and have you know, whether it's appropriate or not what they're wearing or fighting with, but then all of a sudden shifting into a mass combat game set. I've been thinking a lot about that recently, how to really lend scope to like, kind of like, could you, could you run a game that's a role-playing game first that actually has um, the ability to then simulate kind of like a battle of seven armies or whatever, that the culmination of the game is the players actually being able to play out like a, a large set battle. Clayton, I believe we have some experience with exactly this sort of thing. A little bit. Um, well, D&D has always had supplements that have done just have tried to do just that. The game Jordan is referring to is a Savage Worlds game that we played, the Abena game that we talk, we've talked about several times on this campaign. That system, I feel like it did a fairly decent job. Um, I wouldn't say it was seamless, um, but it definitely... It definitely gave everybody things that they could do in mass combat. And that's that's the problem you run into with it whenever you're running mass combat is giving each player at the table something substantial that they can contribute to the combat rather than, okay, my character is, is on the front lines and I kill 18 different people. Um, now go to the next person. They kill their people. Right. That's lame. Yeah. Um, it. It takes a lot more effort to create a system that has some dynamic, some dynamic aspects to the combat or to the mass combat so that it's not just a slog of just, well, I've, I've killed X number of people. Um, is combat over now? Right. And then, but then whenever you did have to do that, you're kind of leaving your character's individual like abilities behind. It's like, if I'm a rogue, well, thanks for giving me command of this legion, but. I mean, can my legion sneak sneak attack? You know, like how can I get advantage on that regiment over there? You know what I mean? You're essentially like giving up your character sheet at that point. Yeah, the time dilation thing is a huge problem as well. You know, you've got all this stuff that your character is built to do. You know, one round at a time, 
But if you try to run, you know, a platoon of people one round at a time, that gets real cumbersome. And forget if you've got like a whole company of soldiers, you know, when you're doing stuff on, on that bigger scale, these, you know, big blocks of troops, inevitably the player character is going to do that rogue kind of thing. Like, okay, well, while they're marching up there, I want to sneak around, blah, 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 and, you know, sneak attack this guy and whatever. Um, but you're working on a completely different pace than everything else, and none of your character stuff is built to be on that that bigger scale. Um, so yeah, okay, the Savage well, Worlds thing I, was fun, but it it was far from perfect. But it was the best one that I've seen. Was it fun? Yeah, it it had a lot of cool stuff about like like army level um, traits that you could purchase, and like like specialized troops or like tactics or whatever. Like I think our thing was that we had a lot of. Uh, heavy infantry guys and then dudes with crossbows and i was basically trying to do that that thing that i was just describing like uh you know big old defensive infantry and then a whole bunch of essentially like ranged artillery guys behind them and just do like you know a machine gun turtle kind of formation uh wherever i could and it worked out pretty good but yeah when you get to individual player characters and um god magic on that level like you're just kind of playing a completely different game at that point that's what i would always that's what i've always wanted to have like a, in a D game at some point have this just like massive confrontation where there's like spell you know there's like war mages contingents of war mages like what would that tactic tactically what would that look like you know it was just to me that'd be fascinating like you'd have wizards flying around the battlefield casting area of effect spells strategically stuff like that'd be so cool well, um, I still have several little points that I wanted to go over, but we're starting to get a little bit long. Um, are you guys ready to move on to geek things? Sure. Or, or there, are there any final points you want to do? If you had some other stuff you wanted to talk about, you know, I'm fine to stick around. Um, I don't know that I have anything off the top of my head to say at the moment, but. Hey, riff on a few of your points and we can wrap it up. Um, I've just kind of wanted to just point out, like, in specifically with D&D and something from D&D that has been copied over into other game systems. What the hell is medium and heavy armor? Like what <laughs> what's the difference in real life? Got me. It's a very good question. What, what is medium armor? I mean the the D&D 5th edition distinction is you have some dexterity in medium armor but not in heavy armor. And this video that we've been alluded to is a video I've posted that I will share with you all, um, share in the show notes of like basically what all can be done in full plate armor. Um, just kind of blowing out of the water the idea that if you're in heavy, in, if you're in full plate armor, you can't move around. You don't have agility. Um, it's, it's a video of a guy doing like jumping jacks, doing push ups, doing tumbles running at basically full tilt and you can tell that this guy is booking it and god help you if you are standing in a um standing and he just decides to plow into you that's a good point you never see any kind of like uh momentum bonus with you know if i'm charging somebody and i've got you know my axe or whatever and i'm wearing 60 pounds of plate mail as well <laughs> like that's gonna be a much bigger hit than random dude who's just running up on you with you know some cloth armor or something that is true but the fighter the fighters combat mobility stuff like uh the combat maneuvers i mean i should say has some fun stuff with movement where you can force movement with different attacks but yeah it never takes into account like you never get a advantage or whatever because you're in play that'd be awesome though i've kicked a lot of people off cliffs and over ships and out windows i've done i've done a lot of that in my D D time it's always the most satisfying maneuver if i would love to get some plate and get some advantage on stuff like that and that's a bad day as a dm yeah realistically you're you're turning yourself into a self-propelled battering ram for sure and like you were saying elliot if other people were trying to do things against you that would require like strength rolls or something you're much more massive than you were before you've got another you know quarter third of a person whatever you know strapped on top of you in steel plate um it should be harder to to move you around there's literally more weight there 
to your point, Clayton, about um, armor, someone please tell me the difference between a simple and a martial weapon. Mm. Well, I think originally, like this is way older than third edition, but I think originally a simple weapon was an implement that had other uses. So like a club, a club has multiple uses and it's not specifically a battlefield weapon. I think originally martial weapons were weapons designed to be battlefield weapons and simple weapons are like a scythe because a scythe is used in the harvest um a sickle is used in the harvest um clubs are used to beat and and thresh grain stuff like that i think that's the original intent behind the distinction between simple and martial but that distinction has gone by the wayside over the years don't even get me started on monk weapons (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was another point that I was wanting to talk about is the just uh, non-European weapons, but we can talk about that another time. That that'd be a great little episode. Um yeah. I I have one uh last question for you guys. Um just show of hands. Uh do you guys prefer the glaive or the halberd? I really don't know the difference. <laughs> there isn't one. That's the whole point. They're statistically identical. In every way. I mean, that's true of a lot of those, right? I think those are the only ones that are exactly identical. Oh, every really? single column is exactly the same thing except the name. Nice. Yep. Way to go, guys. Way to go. What's their names? The Glaive and the Howard. Ma- Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford. Oh, come yeah. Def- come, de- come defend yourselves one day, boys. Please do. <laughs> I got lots of points. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead on to geek things. Um, I've got two, one of which I'm sure everybody, um, both of you are aware of. So the season two of The Mandalorian has a release date, and it's going to start coming out October 30th. So I can't wait for that to start up. Uh, The posters, the character posters for that was released not too long ago. Um, Nothing special about those. They're just a picture of The Mandalorian and the baby and uh a couple of other characters but i'm definitely looking so forward to mandalorian season two when it comes out i hope it's half as good as the first season the other thing that i have is a youtube series called scaredy cats it's a um essay style um youtube channel about horror movies um this is not to be confused with the podcast scaredy cats which came out later um, which is a podcast about a, a, a limited run podcast of several people who are showing movies to one of horror movies to one of their friends who has never watched horror movies. Um, I recommend the Scaredy Cats YouTube channel, which came first. Go ahead, Jordan. Um, I watched a movie last night that I've not seen in several years, and let me tell you, it holds up. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with medieval stuff, but it is totally in line with like World of Darkness, like Hunter kind of stuff. Um, if you haven't seen the movie Frailty, give it a shot. It's Bill Paxton, Matthew McConaughey, Powers Booth. Um, it's almost 20 years old. It came out in 2001. Um, it's, it's about these kids growing up in the 70s and their dad, who up until then had been a normal dude, comes in and says i've had a dream god has come to me it is our mission to kill demons on this earth and he's going to be sending me a list so let's get ready boys (laughs) the one kid's completely into it the other kids dad you're a murderer you're losing your mind (laughs) it's just about this ongoing uh you know killing spree i guess um the dad goes on and the kids help with and all this crazy shit around it. Um, and is dad right? Are these people actually demons? Or are these just human beings and dad's lost his mind? Like, it's kind of up in the air. Give it a watch. It's it's tense. It's uh, well done. I liked it. So, yeah, frailty. R.I.P. Bill Paxton. Yep. Uh, yeah, that uh, that movie's awesome. I remember it's seen. That's an old movie now, I guess. Uh, it came out a long, long time ago. I forgot it existed. It's really good. Yeah, I remember watching it closer to the time it came out, and it really knocked my socks off. That's a great movie. 
before we did our Hunter game, I specifically watched that particular movie. And every time I play World of Darkness, I watch that movie. <laughs> uh, I'll keep the theme of TV show and then a YouTube recommendation. There's, uh, I'm a, I, I've been enjoying Cobra Kai. I don't know if anybody's mentioned that on here before, uh, but it's been out for a while now. It's the, you know, everybody should know if you don't, it's the sequel to a uh, sequel series that's now on Netflix uh, to um, The Karate Kid has all the original uh, actors playing, reprising all the original roles, uh, except for those who have passed. And, you know, a, a few years ago, a YouTube video went viral about how basically in the Karate Kid, Daniel's the bad guy, and it backs it up with a lot of scenes from the movie that makes it kind of like, you know, you can kind of see the point. You know, he if you go back and watch uh, Karate Kid, he kind of swoops in and takes this dude's girl and then gets in the middle of them having a small little fight then punches him out of nowhere and then proceeds to like torment this poor kid uh until he finally beats him in this big tournament and it, it kind of picks up uh making johnny lawrence the star uh it's really good it's not uh it's not too serious just like karate kid but it, it, it has its moments and it grows the story and it it's really fun they uh we me and my wife started watching it again yesterday it was really good uh, they picked it up for netflix bought it recently it was on youtube uh so not a lot of people saw it but it was a pretty big hit over there, and now uh, Netflix has got it, and they really they've uh, they've got they've ordered two more seasons. So it's two seasons out now. They're both really good. Seasons three and four are already greenlit, and uh, I think season three comes out in January. Where apparently my wife was telling me she looked it up. Apparently, there's uh, it goes to Japan, which is going to be cool. And then secondly, you know, I've been re re going back through my lord of the rings I i'm less of a lord of the rings guy and more a silmarillion guy surprisingly i've not finished the lord of the rings but i i've read the silmarillion two or three times uh and there's a youtube channel on there that really nerds out uh, about tolkien's uh, mythology called the uh, men of the west they do a bunch of really great videos on uh uh on all the tolkien lore and it goes throughout all the all the various books and just good, good stuff. And the Lord of the Rings is suits the fall for me. So I've found myself back in middle earth again. It's been great. All right, guys. Well, you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice. Let's do it. This has been a production of alien familiar media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.